You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. Hello and welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a Women's Health Research Cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. Dr. Emily Jacobs is an associate professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at UC Santa Barbara. She explores the structural and functional changes in the brain that occur in response to changing hormonal conditions. In addition to her research, Dr. Jacobs advocates for diversity in science at the national and international level. Dr. Caitlin Taylor is a postdoctoral researcher with Dr. Emily Jacobs at UC Santa Barbara. In her research, she uses neuroimaging to try to better understand the effects of sex hormones on the human brain, and she is particularly dedicated to determining the effects of hormonal contraceptives on brain structure and function. We are so excited to be joined today by our speakers, Dr. Emily Jacobs and Caitlin Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So to provide our audience with an understanding of oral contraceptives, I was wondering if either one of you could touch on this. So what exactly are they and what is the difference between oral contraceptives containing estrogen and those containing progesterone? Well... Caitlin here. Basically, oral contraceptives are just what the name implies. They are contraceptive devices that you ingest orally to basically not get pregnant, although they are used to treat a number of different symptoms or other conditions. But basically, they are just a combination of synthetic hormones, estrogen, and a progesterone. So ethanol estradiol is typically the synthetic estrogen that is used in the birth control pill. And then the progestin component can vary across a number of different forms of progestin. Their effects can differ based on both the formulation and the dosage. And so combined oral contraceptives are those that have a combination of estrogen and progestin, but the mini pill is the progestin only pill. And that just means it doesn't have estrogen in it. And those are used typically when someone can't tolerate estrogen or they have a risk of estrogen sensitive cancer or breast cancer in their family. It's something that you have to take every day and it's very sensitive to time fluctuations. And there can be side effects like breakthrough bleeding and changes in bleeding patterns. And so estrogen can help with those side effects, but then it also introduces other potential side effects that are related to what estrogen does in the body. Yeah, and I'll just jump in to say that, to echo what Caitlin said, these are oral medications. So they contain synthetic hormones that essentially the mechanism of action is to, to prevent the ovary from releasing an egg for fertilization. But these synthetic hormones also suppress your body's naturally occurring hormones. So kind of the overall effect is blunting hormone production. And again, these are often used to prevent pregnancy as the name implies with you know birth control pills 
but many women are prescribed OCs by their physicians to treat other medical conditions, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uterine fibroids, heavy painful periods, acne, migraines, many other things. So it's ability to suppress pregnancy is the one that gets a lot of attention, but these are forms of medication that are used in a lot of different scenarios. And I believe in your research, Dr. Jacobs, you found a correlation between OCs and women's brain health. Can you tell us a bit more about the structural and functional changes that occur in response to these synthetic hormones? Sure. So this is the long-winded way of answering that question is that most of what we know about health and disease is centered on the male body. <laughs> and that has been true since the time of antiquity. And even in neuroendocrinology research, a lot of what we know in, in the kind of human cognitive neuroscience domain uses cross-sectional designs to try to maybe correlate current levels of a hormone with brain structure. And we think that that misses a lot about sort of the, the power of the endogenous hormone system. So, you know, I think basically one of the things to understand is that sort of a key element of the endocrine system is that you have this rhythmicity in hormone production. And these are diurnal sometimes, not just diurnal over the day, but over a menstrual cycle, you can see these really kind of classic rise and fall of hormone um, levels. And we think that this sort of cross-sectional designs that are typically used in Cogneuro just were not capturing that fundamental feature of the mammalian endocrine system to look at whether this rhythmicity really shapes the brain. And so during the pandemic, one of the crazy projects that we came up with was something called 28andMe. So it was this crazy idea to basically image a person's brain across a complete menstrual cycle, so 28 days. And so this person underwent a brain scan and, and blood draws every 24 hours for the 30 sessions. So we had blood and brain scans and we wondered, you know, would this reveal something new about the brain? And, you know, to cut to the chase, it did. We found some really interesting kind of associations between the natural fluctuations in estradiol and progesterone and, and aspects of kind of brain connectivity. That then led us to ask the question of what if we follow that study up to ask, how does the brain respond under these chronic forms of hormone suppression? And that's where the pill came into play. We basically repeated this dense sampling study. This time the participant was on an oral hormonal contraception that squashed her progesterone levels. And we were able to see a lot of the effects that we had observed previously basically go away. I'll let Caitlin sort of explain in more detail exactly what we found, how the brain responded by being on the pill. Well, it was interesting because our functional studies showed a relationship between changes in estrogen, estradiol across the cycle and resting state functional connectivity in the brain. Whereas my structural studies where I looked at the hippocampus and specifically subfields within the medial temporal lobe and hippocampus, I found a relationship with progesterone in my study. And so it's interesting that when we use an oral contraceptive in the second go around of the 28 Me series, the formulation we used basically selectively suppressed progesterone. And so Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, but whereas the functional studies, when she was naturally cycling, we saw changes around ovulation in functional connectivity. There was still an estrogen peak when she was on the pill. And so I, we still saw those changes in functional connectivity, even when on the pill. 
However, because the structural changes I saw in the hippocampus were related to progesterone and that was suppressed on the pill, we no longer saw those volumetric changes over the 30 days that we scanned. So <laughs> what that means, we don't really know. It was the first insight we had into the, into the human hippocampus showing this relationship with volume and progesterone and that we no longer see changes in volume when someone's on the pill. But how that actually translates cognitively, behaviorally, we don't know. It's just a stepping stone into, oh, this is an interesting finding. Let's pursue that. I'll just add maybe, you know, another way for us to answer that is to say, if you want to understand how the brain responds to birth control pill, right, this form of kind of chronic hormone suppression, I guess we have to step back and first ask, how does the brain respond to just these natural rhythmic production of endogenous hormones that occur across the cycle. And so that's really what we did in the first study. And then we followed that up. And so, so one of Caitlin's seminal findings in this neuroimage publication was that, you know, she's beginning to establish that sex hormones can rapidly and dynamically shape aspects of hippocampal morphology over pretty unprecedented timescales. And she then sort of follows that up by showing in response to chronic hormone suppression, you see that modulation go away. Now, a lot of these findings that estrogen and progesterone are neuroactive, critical neuromodulators of learning and memory, this has all been, you know, very well mapped out in the rodent non-human primate literature. So, you know, your own Lisa Galea, Karen Frick, you know, all these sort of seminal leaders in the field have shown this in animal models, often at the microscopic level, looking at measures of synaptic plasticity or dendritic spine proliferation or retraction. But our study was really trying to see whether we could see shadows of that effect at a very different scale, right? Mesoscopic or macroscopic scale using human MRI. And, you know, the short answer is yes, we were able to see rapid changes within the brain of these regions of the brain that we know contain estrogen receptors. They are certainly responsive to endogenous fluctuations of hormones. Wow. Yeah. I mean, circling back to something you said, Dr. Jacobs, about these gaps in research. Why is that? Why haven't these issues been talked about more recently? Yeah. You know, the short answer is that medicine has been fearful of women's bodies throughout history. This dates back to the time of Hippocrates, who proposed that a woman's womb could wander through her body, right? And many of her ailments were because this, this uterus was floating around wreaking havoc. I mean, I, I kid you not, these were, um, you know, the sort of established lore of the time. And, you know, if anybody is interested, there's this just absolutely luminous new book out by Eleanor Cleghorn called Unwell Women. And she chronicles the history of how medicine has failed women by treating our bodies as alien, as inferior, as essentially unknowable, untouchable. And a lot of that has to do with wildly inaccurate mythologies about the female menstrual cycle. So in, in Latin, uterus means hysteria and estrus means frenzy or madness. So there's just this whole mythology on essentially pathologizing femaleness. And she writes actually that our diseases are not elusive to us but something about our diseases seems to thwart and frustrate medicine at every turn, right? So read the book, that's you know my best advice because she just does a beautiful job of explaining this, but my lab has really kind of understood these phenomenons to be true within our 
own field of, of human cognitive neuroscience, that this is a field that has chronically overlooked women's health. And we talk about this in a frontiers in neuroendocrinology piece that came out last year. Essentially it's, you know, neuroscience has overlooked aspects of the human condition, whether we're talking about menstrual cycle, the pill, pregnancy, menopause, all of these features of a woman's life that have failed to be addressed. And our work is trying to move the needle on that. I think it's also, I mean, exactly what you said in that book is also amazing. I will endorse it as well. But it's Rate, review, and subscribe to UBC Medicine Learning Network podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and your favorite podcast platform. Join our community on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at UBC MedVid. Also a matter of like representation, like it was men doing science. And so they were asking questions relevant to their experiences with a hint of misogyny in there of like women's issues were not worthy of study. But with that, over time, men studying men really, or males and considering that representative of the species we all believed it that, oh, we're similar enough that what they find relates to all of us. However, females are like too variable and too crazy with their hormones so that if we study them, it'll just make it harder to figure out what the truth really is. And so it's these kind of historical and scientific precedents that have limited our ability to just recognize that we are applying that myopic lens to our scientific studies. So it's, it's taken a while for us to actually take a step back and say, oh, we're only studying male animals, really. Like, oh, we're, we've excluded females of reproductive age from clinical trials. Like, these have consequences that mean we know less about the female body. So it's only when people started to take a step back and actually ask the questions of what biases do we have when we're conducting, quote unquote, unbiased scientific studies, and how are they hampering us? Have we really been able to advance and say, oh, we are way behind and we need to start asking these questions? And it's wild, right? Because women are 52% of the population and yet we are not seen as the norm. How does that compute? Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you would think that these issues would be addressed by now, but still so many gaps that we're seeing in all these different disciplines. But I- I'm wondering in terms of for either of you, what would you want young women and adolescents to take away from your research? How can you inspire more change to occur? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my first thought is I want there to be the message that the female body, the female brain, things that are of interest to females are worthy of inquiry. There's, I think, an assumption that if it's female specific, men won't be interested, or it's not interesting enough, or it's not important. And so I think what in our work we are really trying to do is say it is important and you should be studied. If you have endometriosis, it shouldn't take you seven years to be diagnosed because we don't know what it looks like. If you have a heart attack as a woman, you shouldn't be at greater risk of dying because we don't recognize your symptoms as being weird because they're not like a man's. So I think just highlighting to the scientific community and highlighting to everyone, male and female, that women's bodies are worthy of study and information gleaned from a woman's body is also relevant to that of a male. It's a misnomer to think that estrogen and progesterone are female hormones. They are present in the male body. And so understanding how they function in our bodies will also give us insight into how they function in the human body. Yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll add that outside of the field of neuroendocrinology, it's almost like hormones have this bad rap 
when we say that somebody's hormonal, right? We use it as a pejorative, as an insult, like, and it's almost always directed at women, <laughs> which is just funny because it makes this assumption that men also do not possess hormones, which is not true. Um, <laughs> and that men don't possess emotions, which is not true. So yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of the justifications were sort of referencing this phenomenon that most non-human primate and primate research, right? Most preclinical biomedical research is done in males. And I won't go down sort of that, the, the history of that rabbit hole so much, except to sort of state that that is a fact and it has not improved since that sort of uh, landmark discovery was first made, right? That is just you know, the state of biomedical research today is that it's mostly conducted in males. And one of the chief justifications used to exclude women are this idea that we have this menstrual cycle and it creates um, variability but those hormones are critical neuromodulators of learning and memory for males and females, right? Men and women. We don't need to ignore them. We should understand the power that it has over physiology. And by the way, you know, just because women possess a menstrual cycle, that does not make us intrinsically more variable than males, right? It, it does not make us unknowable. That is absolutely unfounded. So it shouldn't be used to exclude research that's of relevance to 50% of the world's population. Absolutely. That's my path. <laughs> <laughs> and what are some resources that you would recommend in terms of women who might want to know more about the health effects of oral contraceptives on brain health? Well, read the Taylor et al. review in Frontiers in Neuroendocrinology called The Scientific Body of Knowledge, Whose Body Does It Serve? Spotlight on Oral Contraceptives. That's a good primer. Just to plug the flagship journal from Lisa Galea over at UBC, where you are, I would highly recommend Cinda Aga, who's a filmmaker out of LA. She produced a New York Times op doc called Birth Control My Own Adventure. And it is a very powerful first person perspective on her experience starting at a very young age, going on various forms of hormone based medications. And it's just, I think, a powerful tale of what manipulating your entire endocrine system can do in some ways that are good and in some ways that are bad. So that's powerful. And then the other thing is ask questions to your primary care physician. If you are a woman thinking about going on birth control, ask a lot of questions, including questions about mental health, because you know, we can talk about a lot of the potential side effects of going on the pill. I will say, you know, it's important to state that oral contraceptives are um, considered relatively safe. But that's not to say that they don't have real side effects for many women. Uh, so rattling off some of these, right? It ranges from nausea, vomiting, changes in weight, hair growth, breast tenderness, swelling of the extremities, uh, liver tumors, blood clots, and depression. And that last one is sort of a relatively new discovery, but the mental health consequences of essentially mucking around with your hormone system are very real and they're often not discussed. So I would say for a young woman, ask these questions. And from a physician's perspective, I think we need better checks and balances. So we should offer these powerful medications to women who want them, but we should also implement checks to say, maybe come back in three months and let's talk about how you're doing. Do you have side effects? Are you feeling blue? And, and so often those checks are not put in place. And I think as a result, women can suffer unnecessarily. I think it's important to remember as well that the birth control pill is one form of hormonal contraception. And so 
even if you're taking another form of hormonal contraception, like an IUD or an implant or a vaginal ring, those are still introducing hormones into the system. And while there are claims that they remain localized to the uterus or that they don't have the same effects as taking the birth control pill, we don't know that. And that's not necessarily true because the, there was a population-wide study from Denmark that showed that taking any form of hormonal contraception increased the risk of a diagnosis of depression or filling a prescription for antidepressants. And those risks have been found to be greater for younger users. So really just any introduction of hormones into the system in hormonal contraception is something to be wary of. I think it's treated like it's an easy pill. I mean, it's the magic pill. The birth control pill has done wonders for women on a number of levels. And it's treated as like a magic pill and it is, but it's not a magic pill without consequences. And so as Emily was saying, it's just important to be your own advocate. And so if you're feeling like you have side effects that are related to the pill or related to whatever hormones you're taking, even if your doctor doesn't believe you, it's okay to advocate for yourself, believe that what you're feeling is what you're feeling, and then find someone who will listen to you. Whether that means going off for a little while and seeing if the symptoms go away. I think a lot of people just underestimate the effects that the pill can have or hormonal contraception can have. So it's good to just be wary. And I'll say I cannot overstate the importance of having full and unfettered access to the pill. Full stop. That right should always be available to women without question. That said, and this is sort of me paraphrasing Cinda Aga in her op doc, women deserve birth control and we deserve better birth control. And let's not forget the last half of that because we are relying on 1960s science to affect reproductive function and science can do better because for many women who are using it for pregnancy prevention, they're taking this pill for that targeted effect, but hormones do not have targeted effects. That's actually the beauty of how they work, right? Hormones travel through your circulatory system. They use your blood as its super highway and they go everywhere your blood goes. There are hormone receptors in every organ system in your body, including your brain. And so when you're taking these oral hormonal contraceptives like the pill, you are targeting all of those systems at once. So even though you may desire a targeted effect, you are not achieving a target effect, which is why you have all of these other side effects, many of which are unwanted. And by the way, when in the past, when small scale clinical trials have tested hormone based contraceptives geared towards men, they've often ended early because the men in the clinical studies complain of mood swings and acne which is like, hello, what are we, (laughs) you know, used to the hundred million women around the world who are taking these things. That's what we put up with all the time. Women are routinely prescribed artificial steroid hormones and they stay on them for years. So I don't think Caitlin and I are, are questioning women's fundamental right to birth control, but we are questioning why we've accepted a form of birth control whose basic mechanism has gone unchanged since the 1960s. I think we should demand that scientific research do better. And there's really fascinating new discoveries that are being made all of the time. There's a woman, Polina Lishko at UC Berkeley, who 
discovered that currently FDA approved medication can actually alter a single protein in sperm to make it less mobile, which is as effective as any over-the-counter birth control method today. And that's a totally targeted effect. Why would you try to mess around with your whole hormonal system if all you want to do is prevent pregnancy? Well, she might have the silver bullet to do that. So we need more research, investing in totally innovative, novel research ideas like that. And instead, it just feels like we've kind of carried around this very clunky uh, solution to a specific problem. And we don't need to do that. We can do better. That's what science is, is for. We just have to take women's bodies seriously and treat them on an equal status as men, which the biomedical sciences don't have a good track record of doing. got a few new synapses firing for you be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second wednesday each month get in touch with us we welcome any questions and constructive feedback you can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on twitter at research on wh or on instagram at whr cluster To learn more about this topic, check out our show notes at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 